Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute. Uh, my name is John Lachowski. I'm president of the Institute. And for those of you who are new to us, uh, we are a graduate school and not a think tank, even though we sound like a think tank. And uh, we have five master's programs. We have a new uh, doctoral program in national security and 17 graduate certificate programs. But on top of that, we have a very active lecture series of which this is a part. And uh, because of uh, our abiding uh, concern about uh, the rise of China as a uh, potential uh, peer competitor to the United States, we have been uh, focusing heavily uh, on the Chinese affairs in, uh, in, in this lecture series. And we are absolutely delighted to welcome today John Tassik. John uh, is a, a longtime U.S. Foreign Service officer, former business executive, uh, who has worked uh, for 40 years in East Asian affairs. Uh, he spent 24 years in the State Department, including four tours in China Chinese language posts. Um, he was chief of China analysis at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. And uh, if I recall correctly, uh, he was also uh, our de facto ambassador in, in Taiwan. Isn't that correct? <laughs> no, no. Not, not quite. Not quite, but you were a senior official there in Taiwan. No, I was, uh, um, I was the, one of the last formal diplomats in Taiwan yes. before the... Uh, before the break, but I wasn't the top guy. Okay. This, is, this is 40 years ago. Okay, now, so. okay. all right. Well, um, anyway, uh, John, uh, since being in the Department of State, has served uh, in, in uh, senior business uh, positions, including uh, with R.J. Reynolds Tobacco International and R.J.R. Nabisco China. Uh, he served at the Heritage Foundation for a number of years as uh, their top expert Asian studies. Uh, he is very active in writing on Chinese, Taiwanese, and uh, Mongolian issues. He has edited two books, Rethinking One China and Reshaping the, the Taiwan Strait. Uh, I uh, keep up with his uh, work because I'm lucky enough to be a member of a Google group uh, which uh, has uh, a lot of uh, the top sinologists in it. Uh, anyway, he, uh, John has degrees from Georgetown and Harvard, and let me just turn the, the, uh, uh, turn the podium over to him. We are absolutely delighted and honored to have his contribution to our program. John, thank you very much. Is it on yet? There we go. Well, thank you for uh, having me here. I'm delighted to talk to you. Um, I'm going to be talking about one of my pet theories today, which is the fashionable idea of power transition theory, or what I lightheartedly call the great game changer. Now, loosely described, the great game, or the power transition theory, posits that when a rising power uh, achieves a rough parity with the incumbent 
status quo powers, uh, rough parity being about 80% uh, of the incumbent power's sort of comprehensive strength, if you will. The rising power historically will preemptively challenge the incumbent power for uh, uh, preeminence. The mechanism for this is usually in the form of the rising power, which has been successful in building or rebuilding its industrial or economic base, and then it employs this success in an external expansion. It does this for the purpose of confirming the domestic political legitimacy of the regime in the absence of a culture of strong uh, representational politics. Or sometimes, in many cases, it's just the collapse of the prior regime's legitimacy through economic catastrophe or war. So we can debate historical case studies later on, but that's the theory in a nutshell. Now, to put this in perspective, on the eve of World War II, power transition theory, I'm saying right now we're going through a power transition. Eighty years ago, on the eve of World War II, industrial output of the United States was over twice the industrial output of Japan and Germany combined. Now this fact gave uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill hope. I had a talk with uh, Mr. Lenchowski the other day where I mentioned that one of the great books on, uh, one of the great volumes on strategic thinking in, uh, uh, for leadership is uh, Winston Churchill's sixth volume, uh, History of the Second World War. And in that, he just goes through, he basically empties out his file, file folder, adds all of his cables, collates them all together, and basically gives you a literally a day-by-day -day view of what he did, what his thought processes were every day of the Second World War. Now, this is what Winston Churchill said on March 22, 1941. Uh, it was a cable to the wavering Dr. Tsvetovitz the Yugoslavian premier, and this just as Hitler's Panzer armies were gathering on the, on the Danube River, poised for the invasion of the Balkans. And he said, Your Excellency, I wish I could you know, mimic that voice, Your Excellency, the eventual, the eventual total defeat of Hitler and Mussolini is certain. Now, he's saying this in March of 1941. I, I can think of a lot of things that were certain in March of 1941, but their eventual defeat was, was not one of the ones that comes springs to mind. He said, no prudent and far-seeing man can doubt this in view of the respective declared resolves of the British and American democracies. There are only 65 million malignant Huns, most of whom are already engaged in holding down Austrians, Czechs, Poles, and many other ancient races that they now bully and pillage. The peoples of the British Empire and of the United States number nearly 200 million in their homelands and British dominions alone. We possess unchallengeable command of the oceans, and with American help, we soon will obtain decisive superiority in the air. And then he concludes with, the British Empire and the United States have more wealth more technical resources. They make more steel than the whole rest of the world put together. Well, that was then. That was 80 years ago. Now is now. China has now achieved the 80% threshold and indeed surpassed it. Now, some aficionados of Chinese military history, and I see a few of them here, uh, not, but not these ones, 
Some of them argue that uh, the People's Liberation Army has no doctrine for challenging the United States. But indeed, the PLA has internalized one single and extremely valuable lesson from fighting a major war with the United States nearly 70 years ago. Now, this is what I wrote in 2003 about what China learned, what China, lessons China learned from the Korean War. Quote, in the first month of the uh, Chinese People's Volunteer entry into the Korean War, from October 16, 1950, into mid-November, the UN command had little idea of the scale of the Chinese intervention. From August to nearly to early October, this is before the Chinese intervention, in utter silence, under tremendous discipline, endless train loads. 240,000 CPVs, Chinese People's Volunteers, in nine armies comprising 30 divisions, 30 infantry divisions, and four artillery divisions, deployed from southern China and eastern China, central China, converged onto the Chinese side of the Yalu River. They joined over 170,000 Chinese troops already in Manchuria. Altogether, at this point, nearly a half a million troops after months of careful observation of American reconnaissance aircraft hovering over North, northern Korea, Chinese commanders timed their, the infiltration of their divisions to avoid all aerial observation. Under cover of night on October 16th, 18 Chinese CPV divisions, about 200,000 men, slipped across the Yalu River, quote, all at once, according to uh, uh, General Hong Xuezhi. They proceeded by secondary roads, they succeeded by footpaths and trails into wooded staging areas to await their final offensive. American historians credit Chinese propeller fighter fighters from uh, keeping the US RB-29s, the B-20, reconnaissance version of the B-29, away from the Yalu River. As well as, quote, excellent camouflage discipline for concealing the CPVs once they infiltrated into the North Korean mountains, infiltrated behind American lines, which were pretty thin anyway. When Marshal Peng Da Hwai, the commander, had his first conference inside North Korea with North Korea's first supreme leader, Kim Il sung, on October 22, 1950, General Hong Xuezhi, the logistics commander for the Chinese, was dismayed to learn from a female cadre in Kim in Kim's entourage, quote, we don't have a telephone, we don't have a radio set, we don't have a car, we only send messages on foot, people on foot with messages. So surely this is inconvenient, but you can imagine the difficulty uh, American signals intelligence would have in trying to in intercept any of these uh, um, these. Uh, uh, communications. ComSec was superb. The first five months of the war were disastrous for the United States. They just, they just, just about nearly wiped out the uh, Marines and the uh, 10th, 8th and 10th armies because they, they weren't ready. Infiltrating well behind American defenses, lying low until the critical mass for attack is con consolidated. That's the lesson that the Chinese people's volunteers have learned. And they still hold that uh, lesson.
lesson to heart. Now, how do they implement that lesson 70 years later in the 21st century? So let's stop for a second and consider one of the most magical feats of American technology and systems integration that I have ever witnessed with my very own eyeballs by the internet, of course. Now, perhaps you thought America's vast reservoir of scientific information, uh, scientific imagination has been stagnant over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. But let's watch the Mars Curiosity Rover Mission Control Center at Caltech's JPL, Caltech's Jet Propulsion Lab. Now, I, I show this to you because it's so breathtaking and you, you have to see it to believe it. So I will um, um, uh, let you watch for about um, two and a half minutes of this. Hard flight on Mars, 70 million miles away. I watch that all the time. To me, that's one of the great demonstrations of American uh, systems integration cybernetics. Let me, uh, yeah. That was truly amazing. But the Curiosity landing took place August 5th, 2012. Millions of moving parts on that thing. You saw them all. Billions of circuits controlled onboard artificial intelligence alone. They were 14 light minutes away from and independent of all contact with Earth. So these guys at Mission Control weren't controlling anything. This is an autonomous landing. Now let me bring you back down to Earth. Does anybody remember it? No, you probably don't. Congressional testimony from the Inspector General at NASA to Congress on February 29, 2012, discussing the JPL Net, uh, computer networks at Caltech. Let me quote from what the Inspector General told the Congress. Our ongoing investigation of another such attack at JPL involving Chinese-based internet protocol IP addresses has confirmed that the intruders gained full access 
to key JPL systems and key sensitive user accounts. And then the Inspector General says, let me tell you what this means. When I, when I say full system access, let me tell you what I'm talking about. One, they could co modify, copy, delete sensitive files. They could add, modify, or delete user accounts for mission-critical JPL systems. For mission-critical JPL systems. You just saw mission-critical. They could upload hacking tools. They could steal user credentials and compromise other NASA systems just by infecting them with... They could modify system logs to conceal their actions. You would never know they were there. In other words, this is a quote. In other words, the attackers had full functional control over these networks. Verily, as Shakespeare would say, it doth take the breath away. Or maybe he wouldn't say that, but maybe that's sort of why. These cyber penetrations, I mean, this is just one instance. They demonstrate that NASA in particular, but civilian space contractors in general, and a few defense agencies as well, first are virtually defenseless against them, virtually defenseless against them. Most alarming to me are the almost total the excuse me, the almost total vulnerability of US civilian space assets to hostile information operations from China and the inability of US agencies to construct effective patches when they actually discover the penetrations. Now, I, this is just a small example of what I'm talking about. When Winston Churchill says, we are certain to win the Second World War because we have a bigger industry, we have bigger populations, we have bigger uh, industrial base, we have great schools, we have technology, we have shipping, we control the seas, we control the air. Uh-uh, uh-uh, not anymore. Power transition now is in full flower. Now let me spell it out here. Winston Churchill would be aghast that the United States and its partners are no longer command the global economic supremacy. By any measure, China is the, global, uh, is the world's supreme economic power. They produce more copper, finished copper, more steel, more aluminum, more anything else than the rest of the world combined. I mean, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to start hyperventilating, so I, I did not bring my, <coughs> so I will uh, keep myself. By any measure, China is the, globe, uh, the globe's most populous nation by a healthy margin. China has the world's largest banks. I just looked the other day. Five of the top five banks are Chinese banks. The world's most extensive holdings of foreign exchange reserves, again, by a factor of almost 100%. China is a global seafaring superpower. If you don't believe me, go to any port in America, and you will see nothing but Chinese ships and maybe a few Maersk ships here and there. Right? Um, China has an incredibly uh, global engineering and construction uh, operation, an incredibly advanced science and technology base. And if you don't believe me, go to any school in China and check their uh, science and technology uh, uh, curricula and their laboratories. And finally, I think measured in purchasing power parity, China's military and internal security spending is at least equal to Americans. So when people tell you, 
oh no, China's still be not behind the United States when it comes to uh, spending. Well, it's because they're they're counting it in terms of U.S. dollar, in, in kind of in, in terms of renminbi translating to U.S. dollars. They're not counting it in terms of what you could buy with your renminbi as opposed to what you can buy with U.S. dollar. Secondly, <coughs> the United States and its partners are blissfully ignorant of the virtual equivalent of 18 Chinese People's Volunteers Warfighting Divisions. Is that me? No, that's not me. Because um, they're certainly volunteers, they're not uniformed warriors. That have already slipped behind, across the Yalu River behind enemy lines, so to speak, figuratively speaking. They've infiltrated their rear echelons, meaning America's and our allies' rear echelons. They have camouflaged staging points everywhere, from NASA to Silicon Valley, and you name it. Now, only this past year, this is not me hyperventilating. You know, 10 years ago I used to say this, and people would say, Tassie, calm down, calm down, it's not that bad. Last year, with the Trump administration, and say what you will about the Trump administration, and you probably will, this is the first time America's intelligence and defense leaders have begun to, to sound the emergency flooding claxton in the submarine. FBI Director Ray and a battalion of other top counterintelligence chiefs fanned out across the U.S. to warn just about everybody they could a month ago. This is September 2nd, 7th, 8th, 9th, a month ago. And they said, quote, China is, is devoting ungodly resources and increasingly employing more aggressive and more diversified non-traditional means to conduct espionage against the United States. Ray cried to the heavens. They hit our academia. They hit our industry, our research development, and obviously our government. <coughs> the FBI has arrested double-digit individuals in the last year or so, all for spying on behalf of China. Again, they bring ungodly resources that we can't handle right now. Now this is publicly, the FBI is telling you publicly that we can't, we can't handle this. Quote, China represents the broadest, most challenging threat we face at this time. Now, where there's been a marked increase, the FBI uh, counterintelligence chief says, is in non-traditional intelligence collection efforts, which means not a trained intel officer going out in, in the dead of night and, you know, having dead drops and that sort of thing, or doing brush passes with, who knows. They're talking about those out-of-embassy jobs where they send over engineers, businessmen, and students to do the same type of collection, recruitment, and co-opting of information at mass scale. And he said, by the way, let me, let me just characterize. Do you know how many Chinese students are in the United States? Well, in 2015, they counted 300,000 new Chinese, 300,000 new Chinese student visas issued in 2015. Now the average of each year prior to that was about a quarter of a million new Chinese student visas annually. Now that's a, you know, after four years of college, that's about a million Chinese students. How many of them are, at any rate, I'm just telling you what the, what the, secluded wooden, wooded staging areas are with great uh, camouflage. 
Now, all this is to preface my central lesson. The world's rising superpower has passed the power transition cusp. And the United States in 2018 is about as ready as Winston Churchill's Great Britain in 1939 for this. Now, some of you historians in, in the audience, and I, I see a lot of you, may have the same feeling that I do this afternoon. It's like October 1938. In my initial draft of this, which I, is not in, in your paper, but I sort of spelled it all out and then I ripped it all out because it's taken a lot of time to go through this. But you can use your imagination. The 1930s marked a distinct power transition inflection point, for lack of a more precise term. Two rising global powers in, 19, in the 1930s, one in Europe, one in Asia, wielding strategies of ruthless state mercantilism and absolutist state ideologies, had achieved a critical mass of industrial and economic output. These successes, the success of these strategies were trumpeted to their populations. You know, they, Germany was pulled out of the, rub, the rubble of the, second, the First World War and the Weimar by Hitler. And he said, you see what I've done for you? This is why you need to support me. Uh, Japan, the same way. I, I'm much more different, uh, much more different nature, but more or less the same idea. East Asia and the Western Pacific are now in a geopolitical power transition with the United States as the dominant status quo power and China as the challenging power. Indeed, the capacity of the United States, Japan, and Australia, and the other Asian democracies to manage this power transition will hinge on their combined military, economic, and industrial strength to balance China's rise. It is apparent to me that the key to the success or failure of this pivot, if you will, will be the ability of the United States allies and partners in the region to agree upon a consistent balancing strategy and to coordinate its implementation among themselves. Now let me talk about the power transition theory in Asia balancing and bandwagoning. According to power transition theory, historically, when, when a dissatisfied rising power achieves the 80% threshold of what the Chinese always call the comprehensive strength, the zhonghe, for those of you that care about these sort of things. It begins to contemplate the use of force to satisfy its other demands of economic expansion and, region, uh, and regime legitimacy. So the challenger power always seeks, always seeks hegemony and preeminence in the international system. In its quest for hegemony, the challenging power devises a strategy that encompasses economic, industrial, trade, finance, transportation, as well as social, including demographic, uh, information media, cultural, propaganda, building blocks. All of these building blocks that will undergird the strength of its hegemonic military aspirations. The status quo power generally doesn't see this happening and generally reacts to the challenge by forming and consolidating its own alliances in an effort to balance the rising power before the challenge erupts into armed conflict. Oftentimes, most of the time, this is not successful. Uh, America's, Pacific America's Pacific hegemony in the last century was thrust upon it in the post-World War II era. But in the American strategy, if one could call it that, 
it was a it was a balancing strategy of containment as opposed to a con conscious striving for global hegemony. So through the Cold War, America's was a balancing strategy that centered on parrying the Soviet military hegemony in Eurasia and countering its ideological influence globally. The balancing game, however, is always at a fateful, fatal disadvantage against the hegemonic game whenever the balancing powers are unaware or incredulous that the, that the adversary has hegemonic aspirations. China's modern leadership understands this distinct, instinctively. America's leadership <clears throat> has never been comfortable with anything but a balancing strategy. We're not, when I say never, I mean, we could talk about manifest destiny 150 years ago, but even then, uh, the United States, since the turn of the last century, was a balancing strategy and hence the existing international system now is at a crisis point. The rising challenge, challenging power, China, has now surpassed the putative 80% threshold of combined economic and military power, continues to expand without any reliance either on external military alliances or a commitment to the existing structure of international relations. So many policy analysts in the United States and Europe have convinced themselves that China really does not seek hegemonic status, but rather it really it only seeks mere non-military great power status that will enhance its influence in the current structure of global affairs. And I, for those of you that say, well, who thinks that anymore? Well, I, I've got my footnotes down here. Other policymakers might see evidence of a hegemonic strategy, but simply cannot believe their eyes. One of them five years ago might, might have been your very own Mike Pillsbury. But Mike Pillsbury has changed, and now he's one that worries that China does, in fact, seek military hegemony. Chinese military theorists have been brooding, comprehensive <clears throat> brooding their comprehensive hegemonic strategies since 1999. This is not a secret. For 20 years, Chinese have published on how to fight an unlimited war. I, of course, argue that China does have a strategy. And to paraphrase that great American philosopher, T. Boone Pickens, a fool with a strategy can beat a genius with no strategy. In modern times, power transition dynamics historically have always resulted in major warfare. And heretofore, it was Mearsheimer and half a dozen other people talking about this, but you know, when you stop to think about it and say, well, Mearsheimer's an idiot, he can't possibly believe that stuff. And then you read, and you put it all together, you think, well, there's a certain lesson here. Heretofore, in the European nation-state system, the dominant balancing powers, together with their allies, have generally prevailed over any aspiring hege hegemonic ones. Um, the Congress of Vienna prevailed prevailed over Napoleonic France, the Allied powers against Wilhelmine Germany, the Allied powers against Nazi Germany, and the United States almost virtually alone against Japan. Japan's defeat of China in 1895 and Russia in 1905 made Japan the preeminent power in Asia for nearly a half a century. But Japan's power was generally constrained in the global context by the major world powers until the beginning of the Pacific War in 1937 
when Japan really sought regional hegemony by taking over China. Now that was the power transition point. In the 21st century, China is the rising power, and the United States is the status quo power. The Chinese leadership hopes to consolidate both its domestic and its international legitimacy of the Chinese communist regime by um, supplanting the United States as the dominant power, not just in the Asia Pacific region, but globally. Chinese leaders must believe this, well, Chinese leaders believe this will demonstrate the so called China dream, the superiority of the old something like that. Chinese socialism with Chinese characteristics. Now, first, through the first decade of the 21st century, policymakers in Washington persuaded themselves that constructive engagement would yield Chinese cooperation in such non-security challenges as climate change and environmental crises and transnational organized crime, and the global financial crisis of 2008. And again, in hindsight, it's clear that Beijing's strategic goals in these areas, every time you look at each one of these areas, were diametrically the opposite of Washington's. Now, at the end of 2009, it seems to me, the scales began to fall from US diplomats' eyes. And the real tensions with China and global affairs came into sharp focus. This horrifying realization began in, two, in November 2009, when President Obama, after finishing what he thought was a quite a nice trip to China, went to Copenhagen for the climate change summit and was humiliated. And he came back from that thinking, what? What did I do to deserve that? In 2010, aggressive clashes with China's aggressive clashes with Japan and the East China Sea which included China's temporary embargo on rare earths ex exports. I don't know if you remember this. This is, this is eight, almost nine years ago, but it, it got everybody's attention then. Um, that got everybody's attention. And in 2010, <coughs> coincidentally, the Pentagon embarked on a new development of what was called an air-sea battle document. And these are all things you have to read up on if you're going to be uh, conversant in this. I'm not going to go into air-sea battle, but it's in the notes that I made. <laughs> By 2011, this rediscovery of Asia's um, importance to U.S. interests was given, it's like they had to rediscover Asia's importance to U.S. interests. And it was variously given the names pivot to Asia, pivot to the Pacific, or simply the rebalancing. This pivot coinage of uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was the one that be best captured the imagination. So at least Washington had come to step one of the proverbial 12-step program in its addiction to all things Chinese. The first thing, of course, as we all know, is admitting you have a problem. Neither air-sea battle nor the vaunted pivot was anything that anybody would call a strategy more than perhaps a bumper sticker. No one in Washington's foreign policy defense community, or in Congress for that matter, has any idea of how either concept might be implemented in the real world of China's rise. Now, I'll flip that, but I'm, I'm running out of time here. The science fiction might of China's engineering sector was 
finally displayed in all its splendor in June of 2014 when China began its campaign to dredge and build artificial islands across the South China Sea. And one by one, almost sometimes two at a time, wave-washed coral reefs in the turquoise-blue waters of the South China Sea, almost overnight, were infested with swarms of sand barges and dredger fleets, patrolled by Chinese naval and coast guard vessels. And almost overnight, they morphed into fully functioning naval aviation bases in a matter of weeks. Construction of Chinese artificial island military positions in the South China Sea continues unto this day. Those bases, armed with some of the most advanced anti-aircraft missiles available outside of, the, uh, outside of Russia, and soon maybe inside of Russia, stake out China's exclusive authority over one million square miles of the world's most traveled maritime jungles. Now, future history and power transition. Asia teeters on the cusp of this historic power transition as China, now swollen beyond the, the <coughs> hypothetical 80% 80, 80 uh, of comprehensive power of the United States, views itself as a competitor for geopolitical eminence, not just in the preeminence, not just in the region, but across the globe. Washington now is truly alarmed by Beijing's territorial aggressiveness against its neighbors. Aggressiveness against India, through South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait to Japan, unsettled by Beijing's support. All of these are unsettled by Beijing's support for illiberal powers in Asia, North Korea, Iran, Syria. Um, the new administration in Washington now takes power transition seriously. This new team is embarked on a pushback against China's ruthless mercantilism and its new Belt and Road Initiative, which is intended to chain link China's transportation infrastructure with Europe, Eurasia, Africa, and now Latin America and Caribbean. And for the first time, we have a US president who's maneuvering to counterbalance this. Um, unlike, well, I, I, I will, uh, wrap it up because I think you're uh, watching the clock here. Uh, I, just, I will conclude by saying a true, uh, truly historic power transition is taking place in Asia. And uh, for those of you that do this sort of thing, we can call it the great game changer. Um, that's my spiel. Any questions are going to be answered in your footnotes and um, uh, supplementary comments here if you would you're uh, really interested in. And now, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You may applaud now. <laughs> and now I'm going to accept uh, uh, questions from the from the audience. Um, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, so I didn't think, man, I, I feel depressed. But I want to tell you that the trigger was 2016 when IBM sold our only seven nanometer chip fab to global foundries owned by China. Since that moment, we have marshaled amazing intelligence and military people to fight at the cultural gaps within China's ability to put decision at the edge. They own the supply chain. I had the CEO of EAE say China supply chain three times and never say the word security. But 
what is going to happen when everybody in the world leaders know all the data goes back to China, that they have been surveilling them and their critical infrastructure. So there is a plan, without going to war with China, that will recover, not necessarily, but we are working very, very with the Trump administration to take away the, the gaps that China will always have cultural weaknesses and, uh, again, the, their ability to lead the world, I can promise you. Uh, well, you're more optimistic than I am. Yeah, I am. Um, my uh, study of China's utter penetration and hollowing out of the yeah. global supply chain, yeah. and most terrifyingly, the defense supply chain, which was just raised the other day in the New York Times. For those of you that you know don't read the New York Times, I can not the New York Times. It was uh, uh, Bloomberg. It, it was um, it was Bloomberg that did the, the yes. motherboards. Yes. Yes. And uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal had a big article on uh, re, re looking at U.S. defense supply chains. So, I two years ago, three years ago, I was talking to somebody who was doing the uh, F sixteen. Uh, their F-16 uh, uh, upgrades, and they said they could, they simply could not find any flat panel screens and any flat panel arrays that were not made in China. Not ones that were sort of half made in China or sort of partially made, but completely made in China. And when you think, you just want to think, so the answer to this, there's only one answer. This is not, you know, confronting China globally and cultural and you know you know social issues it's basically taking apart our information technology uh, supply uh, uh, industrial base and rebuilding it brick by brick we have we can do it it's, it's when you think of the amount of money we spend on other things you know a couple of you know 50 100 billion dollars to rebuild this is to me um, uh, worth the money it's, it's well, this is this is why. Never mind. I won't say why I do certain things, but that's why I do certain things. Yes, yes, sir. Can you tell us what should be done? Well, I mean, the first thing, of course, is to you know admit that you have a problem, and now we're finally doing it. Now, the second thing is to create a strategy. Now, I, the Trump administration has issued their strategy last December, which is very nice, but there's got to be. Uh, like I say, I'm reading now Winston Churchill's History of the Second World War in six volumes, and the the decision making that he had to go through in every sector of uh, national life, from the economy to industry to transportation to air defenses to recruiting uh, to training education. Um, keeping political cleavages between, who knows, between the Irish and the, and the British. I mean, it was a broad strategy that he had in mind. And I, I have to say, he went into the, his job in, in, in May of 1940 with this in mind. And as soon as he got into the job, automatically things began changing. One of the big things that we have to do now is uh, what we're rebuilding our uh, industrial and manufacturing infrastructure, and that includes um, bringing steel and you know basic 
industries back to the United States, steel, copper, uh, aluminum, um, bringing, and then rebuilding our fab, our, our actual fab uh, infrastructure. We don't, we, we design microchips. I would, my, my brother's watching, I'll say it. My, my brother designs microchips for a major uh, global uh, semiconductor corporation. Um, but they send all of their stuff, all of their tape outs, all of their stuff. They go to, you know, uh, mostly to Taiwan, to TSMC, some to um, uh, Samsung, uh, some to Chartered in Singapore, but I'd say half of them go to China. And there's no protecting anything from China. Not, and when I say protecting, not just protecting the intellectual property in it, but protecting against them sticking stuff, new little lines in it that you can't see. Never mind, I won't, but the way to do it is to purge yourself and rebuild your, your strength uh, without any input from China. But I, yes, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. Uh, what do you think is going to happen if America gets involved in an armed conflict with China? On the European continent, do you think Russia is going to use it as an opportunity to expand the sphere of influence? Well, I, uh, as President Trump says, if the Europeans want to avoid that, they gotta they gotta come up with the uh, intestinal fortitude to do what they need to do. Some are doing it. The Poles and the Hungarians are actually putting money into their the British. God love them, uh, are at least holding their noses above water. But everybody else, if, if Angela Merkel and, and uh, Emmanuel Macron are interested in uh, balancing Russian hegemony in Eastern and Central Europe, they gotta, they gotta act like it. I think they will. Um, now, if the United States gets into some kind of kinetic, <coughs> excuse me, I have a cold, Excuse me. Uh, kinetic action with uh, China, then we'll see what happens. I I have my own ideas about this, and I shall keep them to myself. But uh. so, just another good news: Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi, and NTT are, are in meetings and have been for the last year and a half with friends of mine, because the one country China is afraid of is Japan. And if they build up their capacity, which they will do, because China has destroyed their, Japan's military-industrial complex, which is Mitsubishi. So there are moves afoot to help our neighbors who don't like China's hegemony either. And so we're going to go back to, I mean, I'll say World War One, but there were some interesting partners during World War One. Well, we had Japan was our partner in World War One, and then uh, at any rate. As far as Japan goes, uh, and Russia, I mean, I think one of your concerns is where Russia comes into this equation. And I, right, as, as a today, of course, Russia and China look like they're aligned. But one of the things that one should pay attention to in um, in Japan as well as Russia is not the in industry, not the the cyber issues, not this, you know, information technology and all this. It's the demographics. And when you have 
large populations of Chinese uh, uh, guest workers in Japan in just about every major sector, uh, Japan has a, a, another big problem. We have a problem because we've got you know, a, a million Chinese students all over the place, and you don't know who's who. Anyway, the Chinese have, you know, five million, I mean, the Japanese have five million workers all over doing, you know, rice planting and, and uh, you know, taxi driving, things that, things, things that a normal Japanese wouldn't do. You know, why? Because the Japanese are now aging like yours truly. Russia is the same way. I mean, I, I, five years ago, I'm not sure what the situation is like now, but five years ago I gave a testimony to the House Foreign Affairs Committee on uh, Russia's tensions with China, uh, punitive tensions with China. And Russia is very conscious of Chinese migrants, cross-border migrants, and controls it very tightly, and cracks down on it at the drop of a hat. And you, somebody, I, I don't know if this is true, this is anecdotal, a friend of mine walked through the city of Vladivostok uh, in preparation for some international conference. What was there? Some kind of conferences in Vladivostok. Asian Pacific. Pardon me? Asian Pacific. Asian Pacific. And said, you know, I, in every other place in, in Asia, in Central Asia, I see Chinese restaurants and Chinese, you know, emporiums and all the rest. I didn't see any in Vladivostok. What, where do they all go? You know, if, Chi if Russians want Chinese goods, cheap Chinese goods, they go down to Blagoveshensk and they go, go down to Khabarovsk and they, and they buy the stuff across the border and then bring it back. <clears throat> but the Russians are very leery about letting the Chinese in. In 2012, 20, no, it must have been 2010 because it was in the WikiLeaks. I hope nobody is offended when I mention WikiLeaks Cablegate. <clears throat> but they had a lot of and just about everything from M Embassy Moscow and a bunch, you know, from M Embassy Vladivostok and all these other things, you know. Our, our day trip to Blagoveshensk or, you know, uh, where, um, and uh, there were several roundups of illegal immigrants in Moscow, you know, 10,000 or so, rounded up by police and herded up and carted off to the Chinese border and shoved across and said, don't come back. And, uh, and then, of course, people were taking bribes just to keep the, 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 the Chinese uh, alien smugglers were paying off people, but the, but the uh, immigration authorities made sure that they abided by whatever quota they had. And I thought, duh, this is, this is weird. I, I always thought Putin and, 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 and Hu Jintao or Putin and uh, Xi Jinping were bosom buddies, but uh, Putin doesn't really treat them that well. So the idea to me is that the Chinese, the Russians are very uh, conscious of China. There's now a broad sort of buffer area zone between Russia proper and China that wasn't there 30 years ago. You know, Kazakhstan is now a buffer zone. Mongo Outer Mongolia is truly the only real border they have is up on the Amur River. Um, but the, uh, the point of this is that Putin sells more advanced 
weapon systems. I mean, Mr. Fisher can probably, uh, Rick Fisher can probably correct me on this, but I think they are, they will sell more advanced weapon systems, meaning systems that are more advanced, to India than to China for this exact power balancing reason. So I, I just have this underlying feeling that maybe Putin is uh, hedging his bets. He's sort of panda hedging as opposed to panda hugging or panda slapping or whatever. Yes, sir. Um, just to dovetail off of your uh, supply supply chain dilemma, um, you mentioned that rebuilding our own, you know, supply chain infrastructure would be helpful. But considering that um, supply chain that you, our country can build can be hacked by Chinese government and we're running this from you know, operations like Subsan and others, do you think that that would really make a difference since everything is hackable? And also, um, another question is. Um, I think we've reached a fork in the relationship between the U.S. and China where one is going towards a Cold War. Do you think this is a good war any way um, that we can possibly divert from this Cold War relationship? Unless, yeah, uh, um, I would say that the reason for rebuilding our uh, information technology infrastructure is precisely to minimize the, the vulnerability uh, to hacking. Not just China. China's hacking is the biggest problem by far, but Russia's hacking is just is just as sophisticated. I think there's a it's it's made much so much more easy because the Chinese have full uh, fully infiltrated the supply chain from from the actual silicon right down to shipping the the, the RAM chip. So I uh, the whole idea of rebuilding the uh, information supply chain is that. We, I don't think we can do it without rebuilding our information supply chain. We, we can no longer rely on uh, East Asian Chinese sourced uh, IT equipment. And if you look at our trade st statistics, um, our biggest import from China is IT equipment. 50, 60 billion dollars a year worth of new IT equipment that comes in. Um, I, I, I can argue with a lot of things. The second point of your question was, is there any way to avoid a confrontation? Some great, uh, I think it was Fred Astaire said, it takes two to tango. That's a joke, by the way. I'm sorry. That's not very funny. I'm, the Chinese have been engaged in this subterranean war with the United States since 1992 or 1993. We really haven't seen it burst out of the open until 1999 with the publication of Unrestricted Warfare. And then since then, people like your very own Michael Pillsbury and Mark Stokes and a bunch of others avidly read Chinese language military doctrine and see what they're saying. Um, President Trump's whole point, Peter Navarro's whole point, Mr. Lighthizer's whole point was we have been suffering from a Chinese trade war, blatant material of uh, uh, state mercantilism for 20 years and they have literally ripped, literally, ripped the heart out, not literally, you get the idea, but they've figuratively ripped the heart out of our industry, they've hollowed out our industries, 
They have undercut our all the steel prices, all the copper prices. They have over overbuilt everywhere, in, in overbuilt capacity in all of these primary um, areas. One reason, of course, is to avoid having to rely on foreign exports for basic materials, which is, you know, you can understand that. But the other reason was to destroy uh, uh, competitive industries overseas and basically do what uh, Theodore Roosevelt 118 years ago, or 108 years ago, said uh, uh, the trusts were doing in the United States. They were undercutting everybody's uh, prices and once everybody had collapsed and all of their competition had disappeared, they would go in, take over the market, and jack up the prices as much as they wanted. Uh, and that's what China's strategy is. Unless the Chinese give that up, and I don't see this because they're now on the cusp of, of, a, of a power transition, uh, I don't see that we're going to be able to avoid anything. Um, it's going to depend on when they get their 18 divisions across the Yalu River and uh, they're fully marshaled and they think they can they can kick the legs out and uh, anyway, does somebody else have it? I, should I, do I have time for more questions or should I just uh... yes ma'am I would like to ask a basic question about the system is it because of Chinese government they are more likely to absorb and use the intelligence or people's intelligence or people's effort, whether scientifically or in a labor sense, they really utilize their productivity rather than the United States. United States, so far as I see, is very hollow and um, sort of very boring and they just use all kind of abuse and misuse or terminology to victimize uh, maybe only use of government resources plus uh, maybe rough um, general public resources. So all the people are intelligent, they don't really receive the reward they are supposed to get, so they don't work as diligent as possible. Instead, they're being utilized or victimized to get the award or contract money and where, to, where, to benefit where, a few. What are we talking about now? I'm talking about systems should be changed in America rather than... Sounds to me like China. That's China's system you're describing. China, I think now, probably absorb more people who are willing to contribute to the productivity or well-being of a society rather than United States. They are more utilized to profit 1% rather than general public. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why every time they have reward, there's benefit to benefit a few, which is produce more and more one percent, and at that point, all the general public. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a, a perfect discussion of the Chinese view of, of this whole thing. So, I, I would say it's just the opposite. I was, uh, I might, there's no sense in arguing with that. I suppose. Yes, ma'am. I'm a Nigerian lawyer. China is now Africa's largest trading partner. What do you think China's endgame is on the continent in light of the Trump administration's apparent reticence to ties with Africa? I don't know about this administration. I think the, I think this administration is perfectly. I mean, isn't isn't the first lady there now? Yeah. Um, 
the, um, the, 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 the fact is, you go through Africa and where, where China's goal in Africa is uh, to secure uh, natural resource production and to control it. And in order to get the natural resources from the from the mines in, in Congo out to the coast, they've got to build roads and railroads. And in order to do that, they've got to have labor to do it. And in order to do that labor, you have to have infrastructure in, in terms of um, housing and uh, restaurants and um, hotels and all the rest of it. So I would say, and this is just my biased view. This is not a this is not a uh, dispassionate view of what China is doing in Africa. I would point you to Howard French's book, right? The co colonization of Africa. Um, but my biased view is that China is basically tur turning Africa into a colony. And you go to any country in Africa, I think, maybe I'm mis mis being misled. Um, I don't want to... Members of some some people in my close family have uh, visited. They go to Lusaka and they go to um, Imaban and uh, Kampala, Nairobi, quite often, and they are astounded at how big the Chinese presence is there, and they're also astounded at how very upset. Africans are with the way the Chinese deal with them, but that's but you're you're from Nigeria. You know this, or you can you can you can you can. Yeah, I just wanted your, your Yeah, my my feeling is that the Chinese are looking at Africa as a part of their strategic global program. Um, but that's I we can I don't I, I'm I'm already way past my time, so I should just judge. Um, John, I would wanted to ask you what you consider. Um, China's principal vulnerabilities. Now, during the Cold War, very few people analyzed Soviet vulnerabilities. And I'm wondering if anybody is doing systematic work on this. Back during the Cold War, I think there was one guy that analyzed uh, Soviet systemic vulnerabilities, and that was Paul Goebel at uh, INR, who was there. Who was, I, I worked our professor. Pardon me? He's been our professor. Oh, has he? Year. Paul Goldman? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I swear, I, I didn't know a damn thing about Russia until I sat in a uh, session with him and went through this, and he outlined them. And this is before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, he, he could see what the fissures were, and uh, I don't want to say anything about anything, but uh, I don't, I, in my experience, nobody has, maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is going on in places where I don't know about. My experience, nobody has gone in and looked at the sort of things that Paul has gone in and looked at. Uh, I think there were a lot of uh, uh, thoughts about using, well, no, I won't, I won't, I don't know that we're, that we're going to get there. This, the thing that we don't appreciate um, with China is how absolutely in a vice grip China has established uh, 
what an absolutely vice grip China has established over uh, all modes of social communication and human interaction. Um, the an impact, the Chinese Communist Party's organization and discipline is such, I mean, it's, it used to be okay, and then through the 90s, through the 80s, of course, it sort of collapsed, but then the 90s, it sort of rebuilt a bit, and in the, under Hu Jintao, and the, the implementation of the, the three, the, one of the glorious thought of the three represents. The Communist Party went out and actively uh, established itself in just about every echelon of Chinese society, such that party members got considerable benefits and, and emoluments and uh, uh, reaped considerable reward, personal and financial, from being in the party. And people who are not in the party generally got frozen out in a number of ways, not just you know on their city street when they're trying to open a, a push a push cart stall, or you know whether they've opened a, a little factory to make who knows what. Uh, they find that if they don't have the patronage of the party, they they don't function. And when somebody says, "Oh, the United States uh, has allowed the one percent to take over," I I basically point to the Chinese Communist Party and say, well, that's that's five percent of the population right there, and of that five percent, probably one fifth of them is the equivalent of the one percent here. The Gini coefficient, as they say in China, is higher than that in the United States. And you think, well, that's not supposed to be. How is that possible? But at any rate, that's my now. So the, the John's question of vulnerabilities. The vulnerability of any regime is going to be its legitimacy. And I think the Russians have looked at that in the United States and said, bingo, we're going to do to the Americans what they did to us back then. And, uh, and boy, uh, you're now seeing a lot of going in there and stirring up little wasps <coughs> all over the place to attack regime legitimacy. And it's not just Trump. Of course, Trump deserves everything he gets because he's... He just engages in this outrageous behavior at times. But it was against Obama. And to see what they did to Obama and, and to Hillary Clinton, just to stir the pot. And now we've got, just this is the sort of thing people were thinking about in terms of, you know, maybe we could deal with the Chinese that way. But the Chinese control it with such a vice grip that that is impenetrable. So I, I have my own ideas about the other places, but alas, I can say no more. Yes, ma'am. So I just wanted to get your perspective about China's strong outreach um, to the Western Hemisphere, specifically countries in Latin America, their strategic locations in the Caribbean, and also Nicaragua, Panama. What is your perspective in terms of trade and also national security? Well, I share the perspective of uh, others like Dr. Fisher and half a, half a dozen other thinkers who, um, who firmly believe that this is not just the Chinese getting out there on their own and, and uh, trying to be nice to people. They're, um, 
they already control the Panama Canal. But the Panama Canal is, is so constricted uh, that they are looking at other ways of, of dealing with uh, global, their global maritime communications. And if you look at the globe, the Central America, South America, the Caribbean, cut their global communications right in half. And you say, well, they either got to go around the other way, or they got to figure out some way in Latin America. Um, Chile, Peru, uh, are huge, Bolivia, huge suppliers of some very essential natural resources that are going to be uh, game changers in the 21st century electronics. I mean, not just copper, but lithium and I can name half a dozen other things. Africa is, of course, a game changer in other, you know, rare earths and steel alloys and this sort of thing. Um, the Caribbean, as Woodrow Wilson learned a hundred years ago, last year, I guess it was, uh, the Caribbean was a, a maritime um, entrepot between uh, Kaiser's, Wilhelm's Germany and potential ally in Mexico. <clears throat> and so Wilson then basically went to the Danes and said, I demand that you give us the Virgin Islands. And boom, they, they said, you know, it's, it's, it's a pain in the neck anyway, so here, you take it for whatever money. <coughs> the Chinese, I think, look um, strategically, geostrategically, at these countries. Of course, another aspect which is impacts on China's, Beijing's regime le legitimacy is <clears throat> the proliferation of countries in that area, in Latin, Central America, the Caribbean, one last holdout in Paraguay, of people, of, of countries that still recognize the Taipei regime as the sole legitimate government of China. And uh, that has always been a, uh, a hair on the throat of the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy. They, could, they put up with it for a while during the last the eight years from 2008 to 2016 because they were pretty certain that the Taiwan president then was, was moving toward unification with mainland China. And now that they, Taiwan has a new, uh, more or less uh, independent-minded president, uh, the Chinese are working very hard to try to pick off what's left of China and Taiwan's diplomatic uh, allies throughout this, the far uh, throughout the world, uh, because they still recognize Taiwan as the sole legitimate government of China. Now, of course, I don't know that they've thought all the way through to the logical conclusion of that is that once Taiwan is not recognized by anybody as the sole legitimate government of China, Taiwan has very little choice but to declare itself independent and seek global recognition that way. The, um, the blowback from that kind of reaction would be that uh, a lot of countries like the United States, Britain, Australia, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, have huge diplomatic presences in, in Taipei as it is, which basically are solely accredited to the Taiwan government, the Taiwan authorities, not to 
China, not to the Taiwan province, not to any, but to the Taiwan authorities. And so I think that uh, I think if, if China goes around and kicks out the legs of all of Taiwan's diplomatic uh, uh, partners in Central America and Latin America, that uh, Taiwan is basically going to turn everything over to this de facto recognition. But that, I think we're seeing that China has um, established these pretty significant presences across Latin America. And I think another thing we haven't talked about is how China gets from uh, the Chinese shore to Latin America, and mostly it's across the open Pacific, and China has, has cultivated tremendous diplomatic uh, uh, relations with the tiny island nations of the Pacific, uh, with the same ideas in mind of establishing almost, if, if anybody's familiar with the game of Go, the Chinese, you know, game of positional strategy, and you look at the map and the Chinese, of course, are putting their Go stones down just about everywhere they need to, and the Americans and the Japanese and the Canadians and the Australians are still scratching their heads and randomly putting down ghost stones that don't, in places that don't make any sense. You, you just think, China has got a plan. They're not, a, they're not the idiot that has the plan that's going to defeat the, the genius that doesn't have a plan. They've got a plan and they are geniuses. So that's my short and not long answer to your question. Thank you for your opinion, but just for clarification. Well, um, who controls all of the, uh, 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 the shipping warehouses? Who, who manages the canal? It's uh, Chong Kong and uh, uh, Hutchison Wampoa. And these are all, I hate, I hate to say it, they're good, good friends of mine. I love them dearly. But they do what China asks them to do. And if China needs anything, they go to Chung Kong and Hutchison Wampoa, they don't go to the Panamanian government. Of course, Panama just recognized just last year, I guess. Yes, uh, yeah. Al. Oh. <coughs> okay. Two things. Well, can I, can, can I ask Katie if I should just cut it short now, or? Just last question. Okay. Okay. I think they were originally talking to Nicaragua for canal purpose. Um, I don't know if you've heard much about that, but I know at one point it was talking to Nicaragua under the new set administration. And secondly, to back up what you said about the game of vote, there's a very interesting documentary on Netflix now, which is about the Go tournaments in the U.S. The most important thing about it is that it shows how to play the game of Go and how complicated it is in moving markers or stones around the board. And in all of the Chinese governmental and military schools, the game of Go is still very actively uh, practiced because it's a strategy game. So, uh, John, I would just add on the on the Nicaraguan Canal, that to me was the biggest hyping job that I have ever seen in Latin America, where some Chinese billionaire of dubious import 
shows up and says, I'm, I'm forming a big you know, construction company to build a canal across Nicaragua. And everybody gets flapped, and there's flapping around and running around and taking, and nothing happens. And there was nothing ever going to happen. It was, it was just basically a, a subterfuge. The interesting thing to me is that Nicaragua still recognizes Taiwan. <laughs> As the sole legal government of China, but that's okay. I think that's it. Is that is that? Can I can I close? You can now clap, clap again. <laughs>